Well, Merry Christmas. I, I feel very much right at this moment like my uh, systematic three professor felt because our class with him was at 1.30 in the afternoon, which, as you realize, after lunch is, as he referred to, the deadly hour. And so I, I, I know I'm sort of in betwixt and between. Everyone is, is anxious to get home and get on with the festivities. So I will, I will try to be thorough, yet brief, brief, yet thorough. And um, <clears throat> I'm reminded, we say a couple of my favorite Christmas uh, songs, Joy to the World and Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I like Joy to the World because it does double duty. On the one hand, it celebrates the first coming of Christ. But if you look and read the words carefully, you can see in them and hear in them a hope for the second coming of Christ. Thorns no longer infesting the ground, righteousness reigning and him ruling the world and all of that. And then Hark the Herald Angels Sing, uh, Charles Wesley in writing that song, you've got, <clears throat> you've got incarnational theology written into that song, right? Uh, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. And then you've got John 3 woven in, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. So you've got the coming of Christ and his mission is, expel, is um, expressed and taught even within that hymn. So it's, we sing these songs not only to add to our joy, but to remind ourselves that many of these hymns that we sing at this time of year are just rooted and grounded in the scripture. And so as we contemplate that, let's uh, go to prayer. Please join me in prayer as we pray uh, a prayer of thanksgiving for this glorious day. Father, we thank you for the celebration of the birth of your son and for its impact, its lasting impact upon the world. We still, Father, uh, throughout the world, mark our calendars by two great events in salvation history. One is the birth of your son, the incarnation, the enfleshment of our living God, and then the resurrection of the same God who dies for us. This is a day when we celebrate his birth, when we look back with joy and remember also, Father, with a nostalgic uh, sense for the future that our Lord who has come is coming again. We pray, Lord God, for those uh, in our own Maranatha family who are traveling. We pray that you would watch over them, protect them, bless their time with family and friends. For those of us, Lord God, who are still struggling with illness, the after effects of COVID or even of grief, we pray that the joy of this season, Father, would infuse into them and impute into them a hope and a solid sense of your presence and your comfort and indeed the joy that comes with this season. Father, we give you thanks for all these things because you have given us your only begotten Son to take our nature upon him and this day to be born of a pure virgin. Grant that we, being regenerate, born again and made your children by adoption and grace, may daily be renewed by your Holy Spirit. This we ask with the same, our, our same Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit in this world that is without end. Amen. So let there be no doubt uh, about the joyous importance of this auspicious day. Uh, in the words of the Apostle Paul, the, this saying is trustworthy and true and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And again, in Galatians 4, 4 to 5, Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, 
so that we might receive adoption as sons. Today is the day that we get to sing with the angels, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom God is well pleased. We sing and rejoice that Christ is born to save us from our sins so that we might indeed truly receive the adoption as sons. And the jubilation of this day is captured and predicted by Isaiah in that prophecy in Isaiah 60 verses 1 and 2. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Literally, wake up, because to us a child is born, to us a son is given. To us is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and his name is Jesus. He is the light of the world. And in the words of the old hymn, the ancient hymn, uh, he came to disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Writing about the birth of Jesus Christ, the Puritan Thomas Watson writes this, Christ was born of a virgin that we might be born of God. He took our flesh that he might give us his spirit. He lay in the manger that we might lie in paradise. He came down from heaven that he might bring us to heaven. And what was all this but love? If our hearts be not rocks, this love of Christ should affect us. Behold, the love that surpasses all knowledge. Well, With the Lord having replaced our rock-hard heart with a heart of flesh, the love of Christ does compel us to worship him as the light of the world and to do so for at least three reasons from these texts. That first, as a light of the world, Jesus is the glory of God in human flesh. And then as the glory of God in human flesh, Jesus leads us through this present darkness. And then as Jesus leads us through this present darkness, he gives us everything we need to follow him. So as the light of the world, Jesus is the glory of God in human flesh. What do I mean by that? Well, part of this is is rooted and grounded in the Old Testament. Because during Israel's 40-year trek through the wilderness, the glory of God was manifested to them, both in the pillar of cloud by day that protected them, and in the pillar of fire by night, which guarded them and gave them warmth and further protection. On the other side of that, we know from the Old Testament that no one could experience the full display of God's glory and live. No one can enter into the presence of God's glory without God giving permission for that person to do that. In Exodus, when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, we're told that the glory of God descends upon that mountain with clouds and thick darkness, with thunder and lightning, and the the whole earth trembled because God had descended, letting Israel know that as comforting as his presence is as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, there is a great, from our side of it, a great danger to the glory of God. There is something so powerful, so awesome about that, that if we were not protected from that, we would surely be killed. Then Jesus is born, and everything changes. And this change is described at the beginning of God's gospel. John, writing in the prologue, the beginning part of his gospel, in John 1.14 says, And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. And... We beheld his glory. 
Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the incarnation. That Christ comes in human flesh. That we might see in him the glory of God. Fully revealed in its magnificence as well as its humility. Because as the glory of God dressed in human flesh, Jesus Christ now, the second person of the Trinity, God in flesh, comes looking for us. Not to kill us but to save us, not to condemn us, but to redeem us, not to frighten us, but to comfort us with the good news. Arise, shine, for your light has come, that which you have longed for, that which you have waited for, that which you have expected and needed has finally come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that light is the DNA of divinity. So when Jesus says in John 8:12, "I am the light of the world," he is in fact saying, "I am God." First John 1:5 says as much. Again, this is John the Gospel writer writing many years after his gospel is composed, many years after having lived with Jesus, walked with Jesus, learned from Jesus, having seen the resurrected Christ. John says in his first letter, "God is light." In him there is not darkness at all. Jesus Christ is the glory of God clothed in human flesh. And adding to the remarkable character of Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, is the setting in which he says it in John's gospel. This is the key thing of the whole text there in John. Because scholars tell us that when Jesus said those words, I am the light of the world, he did it at the very end of the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Shelters, which was described and prescribed for Israel to celebrate in Leviticus 23. God told Israel that long about the middle of October, they were to build temporary shelters and live in them for about a week. And they were to celebrate God's blessings throughout the years, kind of like our Thanksgiving. But at the same time, celebrating God's blessings, they were also to give thanks for a bountiful harvest. Over the years, as this celebration continued, as it took place in the fall, as we know here in the Northeast, what happens when fall comes? It begins to get darker sooner. And so the people began to live more of their time in the dark than in the daytime. So after the temple is built, a light ceremony, a ceremony of light was developed around this holiday, this celebration. And it was a remarkable thing to see. Uh, The light ceremony itself pointed back to that time during the Exodus when God accompanied Israel with a pillar of fire by night, protecting and comforting them. So in a very real sense, the, the Feast of Shelters combines several themes and images. The inevitable winter darkness, the desert wandering, and in connection with Isaiah 60, the expected arrival of the Messiah who would deliver captive Israel from all their oppressors. Now the records of these light ceremonies contain descriptions of what must have been a marvelously dramatic sight, more spectacular even than the lighting of the Christmas tree in Rockefeller Center, if you have ever been there to see it. One record says that there were four, imagine this, so it's four large stands uh, holding four golden bowls placed in the uh, heavenly used court of the women there in the temple. These 16 golden bowls, 
which were reached by a ladder, were, were filled with oil. And into this oil were the soiled garments of the priests, you know, because the priests were the butchers of the ancient world. And so all of their spattered blood on their clothing would be put into these vessels and then ignited. And then when they were lit at night, all Jerusalem could see this. Remember, this is a time when there are no street lamps, there are no street lights. So it's dark, it's pitch black, and all of a sudden there's this explosion of light emanating from the temple. And so in a matter of dramatic and perfect timing, just as these bowls are lit, Jesus comes forward and says, I am the light of the world. Not just here in Jerusalem, but in the entire world. One scholar writes that by calling himself the light of the world, Jesus is referring to the countless times that God referred to his own saving work as light. In his, in his gospel, John writes in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. In God's first creation, going back to Genesis, the first words that God speaks in our Bibles is, let there be light, because light is his very essence. God even led the Israelites with that pillar of fire by night. And they were taught to sing, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? That's Psalm 27, verse 1. And God's wisdom is given to the world and is thus a light that illumines people. Every Sunday school kid who's ever been in a Sunday school class has memorized Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. In rabbinic Judaism, and here's, here's the kicker. In rabbinic Judaism, this light was further defined as the Torah, the very word of God, which guides and provides wisdom through study. So when Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world, he is more than just declaring himself to be God in human flesh. He is declaring himself to be the Torah of God in human flesh. We sang about it in one of our hymns this morning. He's saying, I am that pillar of fire that guided you through the night, O Israel. I am the pillar of cloud who protected you from the burning heat of the day, who supplied you with that comfort. I am the embodiment of wisdom, of truth, and of life itself. And the burning of the priestly garments points to the fact that Jesus is himself the great and final and ultimate high priest who is both high priest and perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. So just imagine every year when they would have this ceremony, they would burn those priestly garments, not realizing until Jesus comes that they were being burned because the one who stood and said, I am the light of the world, is the ultimate high priest whose own, not just his clothes, but his very body would be pierced and bloodied for the salvation of those who would put their trust in him. He came, did Jesus, so that we might have life and have it abundantly. So you think about what Jesus does as the light of the world, as the glory of God manifested in human flesh. What does light do? Light reveals. Certainly it reveals who we are. It exposes our innermost thoughts. It reveals to us the idols that we have worshipped and have put in place of who Jesus is. 
You know, there is a, there's a tendency when we use the phrase, or we borrow the phrase from Jesus, I am the light of the world, we, we tend to want to minimize him by saying, well, that's a, that's a nice sort of sentimental, almost hallmark movie kind of thing. Oh, he's the light of the world. And we think of light as light and peace and wholeness, and it's something that's abstract, something that's sort of outside of us. When in fact, Jesus has come to reveal the very depth of our own darkness so that his light can be planted into us, imputed and transferred into us by grace through faith in him. So his light reveals our need of him. The very fact that he is light implies that there is darkness. It implies that we are living in darkness until his light reveals to us our need to be guided, to be led, to be shepherded. And to see that the solution to our deepest desire and longing, our alienation from God, lies in the one who is God of God, very God of very God, of the same substance of the Father, that is God the Son. And then light helps things grow, because once Christ has brought us into the light, has brought us into relationship with him, there is a need now for us to grow in that faith to flourish in the wholeness that he brings to us. And so Jesus helps us grow by showing us the way to live, how to live, by setting the example for us, by living the life, as many have said, living the life that we could never live and dying to death that we could never die. And then life provides comfort and it provides security for us. When our children were younger, I'm sure you have the same thing, they were afraid of the dark. So what is every parent's solution to a child who's afraid of the dark? Well, unless you really want to be a tough parent and say, well, kid, life is tough, get used to it, usually put a nightlight either in their room or in the hallway so that they're reminded when they, when they get up in the middle of the night and they're looking for mom and dad or if they're frightened by a dream when they, or a nightmare, when they wake up, there's a light that will show them the way to mom and dad, a way to show them to be... There's a place where I can find comfort. There's a place where I can find assurance. So as Jesus comes as the light of the world, he's showing us that in your moment of trial, in your moment of testing, in your moment of panic, in your moment of anxiety, in your moment of fear, Jesus is pointing you to the one who provides peace, security, rest, comfort, assurance. You find it in him. You find it in a relationship with his father and the surrounding presence of his Holy Spirit. I think that's why I have so many flashlights around my house. Probably a resulting childhood phobia of the dark. And then light also gives us hope and courage. When you walk into a room that's dark, what's the first thing you do? Turn on the light. So you don't trip over something. You don't step on something. So you can see where you're going. Light gives us that kind of hope and courage. It helps show us the path that we have to walk. And Jesus will give us the the courage to walk whatever path he has chosen us to walk with the help of his spirit. This is what it means to have Jesus be the glory of God in human flesh. That he befriends us. That he shows us the true mercy, compassion, loving kindness of God. And then as the glory of God in human flesh, Jesus leads us through the darkness. The verse continues in verse 8. Jesus says, I am the, verse 12 rather, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Jesus has the power and the authority to scatter the darkness that shrouds our heart, clouds our mind, and shrouds our soul. Think about the the kinds of darkness that exist uh, in our world and in our culture. There's a moral darkness, there's a spiritual darkness, there's an emotional darkness, institutional darkness, physical darkness, behavioral darkness, and intellectual darkness, a religious darkness. Take your pick. It's all dark. The older I get, the more I realize how untrustworthy are human institutions, how untrustworthy are my own emotions, how untrustworthy is my own intuition about things, that I come less and less, although I am awful and and, uh, awfully tempted to, and sometimes to my own detriment, trust more in my own emotions and intuition than in the light that God has shown in his son, I come to realize I am more and more in need of being dependent upon the one who is God in human flesh. Maybe you have found yourself in that position as well. You have this sense, I'm just going to follow my gut. I'm going to follow my heart. Don't do that. Because more often than not, your gut and your heart is leading you to the thing that you selfishly think is best for you. When Jesus calls us at times to lay down those things as a sacrifice and say, no, for the good of my family, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to satisfy that desire. I'm going to pursue what is best for them. Jesus' love is an other-centered love. The whole point of his agape is the fact that it's centered on fulfilling someone else's desire and need. That's why God comes God, you think about the incarnation, the miraculous and almost mind-boggling nature of it. It's that God sends God to save us from God. He sends God in human flesh to save us from God's wrath against us for our sin. And God's solution to that is, I will come in human form and I will suffer every indignity, every injustice. I will suffer every form of prejudice, bias, an evil that the human heart can conceive and practice so that my love will be displayed and experienced to the full. Light comes to expose the darkness because the darkness allows us, so we think, to ignore, to escape, and to forget Because what we can't see, we don't have to deal with. My apartment in Brooklyn had cockroaches in it. And if you've ever lived in an apartment with cockroaches, you know what happens when you turn on the light. Like the feet of a million critters. Just... I just leave the light off. They're out there. They're not going away. But if I don't see them, they don't exist. That's what the darkness deceives us into thinking. That we can cover ourselves with darkness like a blanket. But the truth is, our sin is too big and the blanket is too small. Moreover, the Bible tells us that not even the darkness can hide us from the searching eyes of a gracious, seeking God. Remember, Jesus said it himself, I have come to seek and to save the lost, not to destroy them, not to kill them, 
Not to condemn them, but to save them. He comes searching for us. Christianity is the only religion in which God comes looking for his creation. And what do we do? We are the cockroaches who are running from the light. Because we fear what the light will expose. But the very thing that we fear is the very thing that we need, which is grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Arise, shine, says Isaiah, because your light has come. It's a good thing that God is looking for us. Because as the light of the world, Jesus makes it possible for us to see the glory of God and live. More than that, to be forgiven. He makes it possible for us to be put right with God. Something that fear and darkness seem to us are impossible or unavoidable. And yet Jesus says, I have come to seek and to save Darkness is a prison into which all of us are born, but the good news is Jesus came to rescue us from that prison. We don't have to live there. We may be born in darkness, but we don't have to stay in the dark. We can be free. We can be free to live and to walk in the light who is Christ. The light of the world has come and has forever changed everything. It will lead us out of darkness into the life that we truly need to live you think about the fact that light always overcomes the darkness. When you turn a light on in a room, you, you, like the darkness doesn't push back. You put the light on in a room, it's like, darkness, nope, nope, not going to happen. No, you put the light on, the whole room is lit. There's an inevitability to light. Once light starts to shine, it can't be stopped. That's why so many churches at their candlelight service on Christmas Eve have a candlelight service, because it starts... You know, with one candle and it spreads throughout the entire congregation. Or if you were ever part of an InterVarsity group, you know that that song, it only takes a spark to get a fire going. And then the girls say, going. Right? Just one spark. And it spreads. It spreads. Think about the sunrise. You know, once the fingers of the sun's rays grab the horizon, there is nothing that's going to stop the sun from coming up and over the horizon and bursting forth up into the sky. That's the kind of light that Jesus reveals in us. Once the, the, the fingers of his grace get a grip on our heart, illumine our mind, it begins to open up to us a whole new world and a whole new way of living and a whole new way of thinking. Because his light has dispelled the gloomy clouds of night, has chased away our fear even of death itself. Jesus leads us through the darkness, and he does so by giving us everything we need to follow him through the darkness as the light of the world. I am the light of the world, he says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. To follow Jesus as the light of life simply means trusting and obeying everything he says. That's faith. Faith is trusting in Jesus and obeying everything he says, taking him at his word. You think of the old saints, you know, Abraham there, no heir. He's an old man. Sarah is well past the age in which women are to give birth. And God tells him, look at the stars in the sky. Abraham, see, you can't count those stars, but your descendants will be more than the stars of the sky, more than the sands on the shore. And the scripture says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him. It was accounted to him, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham believed, 
and Sarah conceived. We will not always know where Jesus is leading us, but of this we can be certain. He is leading us to a better place than where we are right now. And he will make us a better person than we are right now. Because that is the nature of light. To change, to reform, to transform. The reason I think we modern types have a problem with Jesus is because like so many in our culture, we, let's, let's be, we're uncomfortable with people who think, who speak, and who act with such absolute certainty. I mean, there's nothing doubtful about what Jesus says. I am. I mean, that comes right out of Exodus 3.14 when Moses is standing before the burning bush and God speaks to him and says, go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go and then tell Israel to follow you into the place where I will show you. And Moses says, well, how am I supposed to get them to do that? How will they know it is you who have sent me? And he says, you tell them I am that I am have sent you. So Jesus is speaking not... Yeah, it's possible I could be God. Just hang around, follow me for a little bit. You may get the sense I'm a little divine. He says, definitively, I am. But in a world where everything is fluid, where we can make up words and definitions of words so that they don't really matter, people like Jesus and people who follow Jesus are considered dangerous because we have the audacity to assert with an inflexible certainty and a concrete correctness of a single idea, a standalone truth that he is the light of the world, that he is God in human flesh. Because when you fit and come right down to it, we want a Jesus we can manage, and Jesus is unmanageable. He's not a Republican. He's not a Democrat. He's not even an independent. He's not a libertarian. He's not a communist. He's not a socialist. He's Jesus. And he transcends all politics. Listen, if our problem were political, God would have sent a politician. If our problem was economics, he would have sent an economist. If our problem was that we didn't have enough science, he would have sent a scientist. If our problem was was medical, he would have sent a physician. No, he sends a son. He sends a savior. He sends someone who doesn't fit into our categories, but is his own person. We want a Jesus who makes us comfortable, particularly with our own self-righteousness. But Jesus afflicts the comfortable. And we want a Jesus who will expose the hypocrisy of others while ignoring our own hypocrisy. The speck and the log. But Jesus is searching for people who will worship him in spirit and truth. We want, bottom line, we want a Jesus who is safe and who tells us to do safe things. But we're supposed to be like Peter, saying, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you, and I'll step out onto the water from this boat. And Jesus looks at you and says, come on, come toward me. I know the wind is strong. I know the waves are lapping. I know you feel the spray of the water in your face. Keep coming. Keep coming to me. Because I'm not safe, but I am good. And I am holy, and I am righteous, and I am humble of heart. I am the light of the world. So you must make a choice. Either we follow Jesus and walk in the light of life that he is, 
or we continue to go our own way and continue to stumble into the dark. Because Jesus doesn't offer us power in the way that our world defines power. He offers us a cross. He doesn't promise us uh, an easy life. But what he does promise is to give us the faith, hope, and courage to walk the life that he has called us to live as we follow him. He doesn't promise also easy answers. Was that line from The Princess Bride where uh, Wesley, who is the Dread Pirate Roberts, tells, life is pain, princess. Anyone who tells you differently is selling you something. Right? Jesus isn't selling anything except the truth. And he is the truth in human form. He promises always to tell us the truth because he is truth incarnate. And as such, he gives us what we need. You think about, this is the second I am saying of Jesus in John's gospel. So what does Jesus give us that we need to follow him? Well, he says in John 6, I am the bread of life, because he knows that on this journey, following him as the light, we will need to be fed spiritually and feast upon him. So he says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the one who's going to give you the sustenance that you need to follow me. And if we don't know which way to go, he says, well, I am the door. Come through me. And if you are kind of lost and not knowing your way, he says, I'm the good shepherd who will lead you into good pasture. And if we become fearful and frightened of what our own mortality may do to us and illness may afflict us, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. You have no fear of death. And if we become confused on this journey of following him and not quite sure if Jesus really is who he says he is, he reminds us, look, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You're on the right path. Keep following me. Oh, and by the way, when we struggle to do the right thing because we're not sure what the right thing is, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You can't do anything apart from faith in me. That's what it means to follow him as the light of the world. To become a better parent, to become a better father, to become a better husband, a better wife, a better friend, a better son, a better daughter, a better person, to trust in him. As these things. It was near the end of the, the fourth century that the uh, Bishop of Milan, Ambrose is his name, delivered a Christmas sermon, which I would imagine was a bit more brief than mine this morning. But in that sermon, this is what Ambrose said. He said, Well do Christians call this day on which our Lord was born the day of the new sun. And they assert it so insistently that even Jews and pagans agree with them, using that name for it. We are happy to accept and maintain this view because with the dayspring of the Savior, not only is the salvation of mankind renewed, but also the splendor of the sun. For if the sun withdrew its light when Christ suffered, it must shine at his birth with greater splendor than ever before. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. His name is Jesus. He is the light of the world. Everyone who follows him will walk in the light of his life, his truth, his beauty, and his glory. I invite you today, if you have not already begun to follow him, follow him. And if you are following him, brother, sister, Keep 
following him because he is the light of the world. And one day, one day, he who has adopted us as his children will make it so that when we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he truly is. You think about that. Please join me in prayer. Father, I mentioned at the start a hymn that is a favorite. Wesley penned two more choruses to Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and they are a prayer. And so we pray, Father, come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Now display thy saving power. Ruin nature, now restore. Now in mystic union, thine to ours and ours to thine. Adam's likeness, Lord, efface. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Let us thee, though lost, regain. Thee the life, the inner man. O to all yourself impart, formed in each believing heart. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Amen.